Uh, yeah, thanks for um, such a lovely introduction and for inviting me. Um, it's when you do something like this, uh, you get a lot of invitations to come and give talks and I find it increasingly easy to say no to uh, talks. So it's really great actually to get your one because I've been looking through the um, the program for the um, unit for bio, biocultural variation and obesity today. And it's, it's really impressive just the diversity and the breadth that you're that of, of what you're trying to achieve with this program. And um yeah, it's really, really impressive. And, and so it's lovely to be able to contribute to that. And I'm glad that you thought I was someone worthy of contributing to it. So thank you. Um, so I appreciate that, although this programme takes a multidisciplinary approach to studying obesity, as a sociologist, many of you in the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology may not be aware of me or familiar with my work. So if you, if you will indulge me, it makes sense to start um, by telling you a bit about, about myself. So, right, and this is where I have to get the slides and that in, in unison. So I'm a sociologist who researches the relationship between body weight, inequality and health. Uh, my research spans the macro micro scale by analysing how government policies and social circumstances impact individual health and well-being. So in particular, I explore how and why inequalities in health exist and what the most effective interventions would be in order to reduce them. Uh, like this unit, uh, my research is multidisciplinary, which is uh, in practice means that I collaborate with others ac working across both the science and the arts. Um, I feel this is absolutely essential because uh, with an issue like obesity or more specifically the relationship between health and weight, it's so complex that no one discipline will be able to come up with all the answers or, or even to attempt to come up with or should attempt to come up with all the answers. So we should be working together and learning from each other. So in part, I suspect that I was invited to contribute today because in the last few years, I've become known as the comic book guy. Um, and this seems to be an identity which transcends disciplinary boundaries. Um, whether I like it or not, to some extent, this is earned as I created an evidence-based comic with the award-winning illustrator Jade Sarson called The Weight of Expectation, which some of you may have seen in advance. If you haven't, it is all accessible digitally um, via my website, and I can send a link around if people um, want to have that afterwards. And so what this comic does is it tells the story of how stigma associated with body weight and size gets under the skin and is felt in the flesh. This came about because, as well as being a researcher, as Stanley said, I, I co-founded an art collective called AWL. Uh, we work collaboratively with artists and designers to make evidence relating to social just, justice issues accessible and engaging for as wide an audience as possible. The Weight of Expectation comic is an example of our work and is now being used in health education programs and healthcare services around the world. And I'm hoping that some of you tuning in today um, will see the relevance of this comic to your work and will perhaps be able to put it to good use. And if you would like to put it to good use, you can order free um, packs of the comic that I can send out to you. And again, I can send links for those at, at the end. So today I will use AWL artworks throughout my time with you um, to illustrate my main argument, which is this. The way that we currently approach the issue of weight is unfair, ineffective, and needs to change. 
Um, so I think it's fair to say that sociology and dietetics will often come at issues from very different perspectives. So taking multidisciplinary, uh, multidisciplinarity seriously, I thought it'd be useful to start with some common ground. So I saw recently, I think it was last year, that the geneticist Giles uh, Yao uh, was appointed the honorary president of the British Dietetics Association. So well done, Giles. Um, I appreciate that Giles is not a dietitian, but his appointment suggests to me that there is something about his analysis of how genes influence diet choices um, and weight that either appeals to or represents the views of the British Dietetics Association, or at least I'm hoping this is the case. I've done a bunch of events with Giles. I've been very lucky in that respect. Um, and I've heard him talk on numerous occasions. So now I should be clear, me and Giles may not always be on the same page about everything, um, but what I have found interesting and heartening when, gi when giving talks that um, often follow Giles is people allow people, they normally, when they organise these things, allow people to see Giles and then everyone can, can sort of filter out before the smaller names will uh, go on and talk. Um, so normally what I'm seeing and sort of finding heartening is that, um, that these talks basically that he when he gives them that he's suggesting that we study although we study people from opposite ends of the human spectrum me and Giles this is so he zooms out to look at what we've made what uh, people are made of and I'm uh, he zooms in sorry to look uh, at, into what people are made of and I zoom out to look at what we're part of um, naturally this means we collect very different data and have and use very different techniques to analyze it yet ultimately we make broadly the same point which is this body weight is not simply the outcome of personal choices so here we have broad agreement at poles of the study of humans and yet the reason why Giles's uh, research and to a lesser extent mine gets so uh, uh, or the reason Giles's research and to a lesser extent mine gets so much attention is because it runs counter to the dominant framing of weight within public health and popular culture so despite the non-infectious nature of the of high BMIs, we now talk about an obesity epidemic placing a huge financial burden on national economies across the globe. The World Obesity Federation estimates that by 2025, so only five years away, obesity-related illnesses will cost $1.2 trillion a year and treating conditions associated with being overweight are estimated to cost our, our own NHS uh, in, in the UK £6 billion a year with forecasts predicting that this would double uh, uh, by 2030. So now, before I go on, let me clarify a few things. I, I do not deny that in recent decades, there has been a significant increase of the number of people who are classified by the BMI scale as being either overweight or obese. Neither do I deny that there is a strong association between high BMIs and non-communicable diseases. In fact, recognising these realities was one of the main reasons why I argue that current approaches to combating the so-called obesity crisis need to change. And there are many reasons to be critical of the way obesity is currently framed and understood and the interventions designed to lower its incidence. In short, while some would argue that obesity represents one of the biggest threats to public health that we now face, what I am arguing is that actually one of the biggest threats to public health um, now is the way that public health predominantly defines and approaches obesity. And so why is this? Well, 
lifestyle modification is said to be both the cause and the cure of obesity. The idea that modern society has changed everyday life in ways that promote weight gain. Despite recognition that body weight is a complex issue influenced by a variety of biological, psycho psychological, environmental and social factors, and significantly that when used within the BMI measure, it is only a very crude indicator of health. Obesity prevention strategies commonly approach weight as the outcome of personal choice and willpower. This is well illustrated by the Public Health England campaign, Change for Life, which you can see on this slide here. Um, the campaign slogan here, like in the UK, there is, I would suggest not a single person who has been able to avoid the slogan of this social marketing public health campaign. So eat well, move more, live longer. Now, the thing is, there is truth to this slogan. In fact, it's evidence-based and you could even say it is common sense. I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. And this makes the job of a sociologist very difficult because if you argue against what's considered common sense, you just seem cynical and unhelpful. The best way that I have found to, com to combat this is to take on common sense with common sense. So what you're seeing here is a genuine um, poster that came from the Change for Life campaign and a... A uh, poster that we created as part of our collect, collect, art collective AWL. So what the, the campaign poster is doing for Change for Life is perhaps subtly trying to give a message here. So hands up who wants our kids to live longer. What this poster is doing essentially is splitting all of the population into two sets of people. So depending on how you answer this question. So Presumably, there's, there's, there's a, an amount of the population who will say that they do want their children to live longer. And therefore, as a consequence of that, they will help them to eat a healthy diet, help them to be physically active, and they will act as role models themselves by doing that. And then obviously, the other part of the population who clearly just want children to die. Um, so that, that's the sort of hilarity that's being sort of portrayed in this message that you're kind of either with us or, or against us in that sense. All we're trying to do um, with, with our um, poster here is essentially just sociology 101. It's no more sophisticated than that. It's trying to get people to see and to recognize that contextual factors influence individual behavior. Um, the Change for Life campaign places all the emphasis on personal choice and individual responsibility. This discounts the genetic variation within any population that means some people are more susceptible to putting on weight than others, while simultaneously casting anyone categorised by the BMI scale as overweight or obese as, as an irresponsible person, placing an avoidable burden on the National Health Service. In essence, this campaign uses stigma as a strategy to promote weight loss with the assumption that this will improve health outcomes. Now, if genetics weren't a factor and we lived in a society where a healthy lifestyle or a so-called healthy lifestyle was a freely accessible and realistic option for all, then this strategy might work. But this isn't the case. And how do I know this? Because of all of the evidence demonstrating a link between inequality and obesity as measured uh, by BMI. Uh, for example, a couple of years ago now, the Health Foundation indicated that 14 million households in Britain 
are unable to afford to follow government recommendations for healthy eating. To put this into context, even with a conservative estimate of two people per household, this means that roughly half the population are unable to follow Public Health England's instructions for how to eat well, despite being bombarded with this message. This is where an appreciation of social context is key. We live in one of the most unequal societies in the world. About a decade ago now, and I believe before he joined you in Oxford, uh, Professor Danny Dorlin declared the scandal of our times as being the biggest gap in life expectancy recorded in Britain since the recession of the 1880s. He was referring to the 14.4 years in difference between in life expectancy between the relatively deprived city of Glasgow and the affluent borough of Kensington and Chelsea. And I think it is a useful footnote here to say that he was writing this before the Grenfell scandal. Um, so obviously that did occur in the borough of Kensington and Chelsea. And I think that Danny may have chosen uh, different language perhaps to describe the scandal of our times had uh, this had he been writing this after Grenville. But I also think that it, it supports his thesis on this as well. So for all the scientific and medical advances we've had since the Victorian era, health inequalities persist and social disadvantage clearly influences BMI. And you can see this in social gradients. So social gradients are for sociologists, both beauty and the beast. I mean, look how beautiful this that this illustrates the relative impact of social status. It's like a stairway to privilege. But once you step back from them as purely illustrations of data, you see the beastly reality. Overall, what social gradients demonstrate is that throughout a society from for uh, people from all walks of life are affected by particular health issues. Um, in this case, obesity as measured by BMI, but that those lower down so the socioeconomic spectrum are disproportionately disadvantaged by them. So the implication of this epidemiological phenomenon is that a person's social circumstances, that is their access to resources, tend to have a significant and cumulative impact on their health. What you see here is just that. And significantly, what you can see in the other graph is that in, in incidence is growing. So a sociological analysis uh, would suggest that the current lifestyle focused public health obesity prevention strategy is reproducing what's known as the inequality paradox. So that is because those with the most resources at hand to adapt to new situations um, will be the first to derive maximum benefits from such an approach, health inequalities will widen. So in short, simply telling people to eat well and move more and even educating them how to will disproportionately benefit the health of people higher up the socioeconomic spectrum as lower socioeconomic status tends to reduce a person's capacity to comply with health advice. So social disadvantage clearly inhibits people's capacity to live a so-called healthy lifestyle. This is why the prominent epidemiologist Michael Marmot wants us to focus on the causes of causes of ill health. What he means by this is that while so-called lifestyle factors like diet and inactivity may be considered causes of ill health, what are the causes of these causes? Now looking at these social gradients as a sociologist the answer seems obvious. Social inequalities are key. But there is a reluctance to recognize this in, in health policy and promotion and even in health research. So Cancer Research UK offer 
a perfect example of this. They have consistently over a decade run campaigns that frame obesity as the outcome of individual lifestyle. So doing my bit for public sociology, I was part of a campaign launched in response to their most recent stigmatizing campaign. This actually landed me on national news and provided me with possibly my finest achievement as a, as a sociologist to date. So I'm going to try and play a video clip here. I've never tried to do this over Zoom. I don't know if it's going to work. Um, but if it does, watch this and see if you can spot the bit where the presenter doesn't want to deal with the inconvenience of sociological analysis. So let's see if we can get this to work. And I, I mean, we agree, do we, all of us here, that the science is correct, that obesity can cause 13 types of cancer. It's more common now for obesity to cause bowel cancer, kidney cancer, ovarian cancer, liver cancer, more than smoking. So what's wrong with this campaign? Is it surely just a hard message where it's really needed? So what we agree on is that obesity shouldn't be treated as a, an individual issue, that it's about people making bad choices. It should be treated as a complex social issue and policy intervention is absolutely key. We also agree that Cancer Research UK are operating in a very hostile policy environment where getting any policy through is very, very difficult because of things like Brexit and because of things like... Well, it sounds like you're going into big theory here. So I'm not sure how well you could hear that. Hopefully you could hear some of it. But essentially, if you if you weren't able to hear it, um, I started to list some of the social determinants of health um, and why and to suggest why, you know, a strategy like this wouldn't be particularly useful in trying to do what they were attempting to do, which is, you know, reduce the rates of um of, of of the incidence of obesity and was shut off and sort of that was made out to be big theory. So despite it clearly being an inconvenient re reality, in all my time um, researching these issues, working with people who live in deprived areas, I've never met anyone who didn't know that eating fruit and vegetables and exercising is good for your health. I did, however, meet lots of people who found it difficult to live a healthy lifestyle because of their social circumstances. Simply telling people um, that simply telling people to eat well and move more won't significantly reduce the incidence of people with BMIs of 30 and above because it doesn't deal with some of the major root causes. It's a bit like this. You can use water to put out fire, but fires are not caused by a lack of water. And I know that all of you will agree with this logic. It's why you don't hose your house down to, pre uh, to prevent it from catching fire. You know, you put everything's in place because you recognise that drenching your house every morning to ensure it doesn't catch fire might have additional detrimental impacts on your house. Um, so if we're serious about promoting health, we need to approach weight as a social issue rather than a personal failing. Until we do this, not only are we missing the point, but we're making more problems for ourselves. And this is what the Weight of Expectation comic is all about. It is based on a year I spent with three weight loss groups that met in one of the most deprived neighbourhoods in England. The groups were all single sex, two for women and one for men. And if there's any questions afterwards about how I sort of ingratiated myself or was able to gain access into the two all female groups, um, we can talk about that at the end. Um, and they met at a leisure centre once a week uh, for an hour and a half. Every week, each group member would get weighed and have their weight recorded. They would then spend an hour being physically active as a, as a group. So people who live in less affluent areas are disproportionately disadvantaged um, 
by the effects of inequality and high BMIs. So I was particularly interested in finding out about how the people in, in, in the study, the people in these groups negotiated this. And I learned a lot from my, the time I spent with these groups. It was clear that group members were all forced to negotiate weight stigma in their everyday lives and that being stigmatized actually made it more difficult for them to lose weight. This is what pretty much all of the research on weight stigma shows, so it wasn't necessarily surprising. Not only does stigma not promote weight loss, but it actually promotes weight gain, for instance, through comfort eating or what I would call sort of stress eating um, and exercise avoidance. It's always seemed particularly cruel and counterproductive to me that in our culture, bigger bodies are stigmatized, but in public health, we often promote swimming as one of for people to lose weight because of its non-weight bearing um, properties. But in almost all instances, it also necessitates getting half naked in a public place where there are where there will be people who can and do look unkindly on you. In fact, this page of the comic that you should be able to see on your screens has been one of the most uh, has been the one that most people have identified with and wanted to talk to me about. So many people of all shapes and sizes has come up to me and said, that's me. I've felt that. This is one of the many reasons why people find it difficult um, to follow the simple logic of move more, live longer. So my research shows that it's absolutely imperative that those seeking to promote weight loss and to treat people living with obesity need to take the influence and effects of weight-based stigma seriously. It's not enough just to tell people to move more. You need to consider what the social factors which either support or inhibit that. So the part of my research that I want to focus on with you today is not that uh, is not what weight stigma made people do or not do, but rather how it got under the skin. Um, so this is what I this is what I mean by the weight of expectation. And the reason I want to focus on that today is just with this being an, a, a, an anthropology group, I think that it's it's interesting to engage with social theory and to see how we might study um, obesity with social theory and to see how we might be able to influence uh, thinking and practice with that social theory which is often that theory is often sort of quite disconnected from practice because uh, obesity is framed as a personal failing that places an unnecessary financial burden on national healthcare systems the behaviors associated with weight gain are moralized people don't just talk about eating healthy and unhealthy food or being active or inactive people talk about being good or bad what i found working with the weight loss groups was that stigma attached to these bad so-called bad behaviors gets under the skin and is felt in the flesh. And I mean that really literally. They feel it in their flesh. People feel it in their bodies. It's a sensation that they feel. So let me explain what I mean. So when I was observing the group, so you know, I, I spent about a year with three weight loss groups. So imagine I'm sort of going to three different uh, groups uh, during a week. So, you know, uh, roughly about 150 observations took place. So what I saw at almost every group session was people coming in. So one or multiple people coming in and saying, I know I've put on this week. I know I have, I feel fatter. They would often talk about, I feel gross. And then they would describe things like my clothes feel tighter. 
it, it's more difficult to get. They would talk about physical sensations, how they knew they could be certain that they had put on weight. And then they would list, after they had done this, they would list a bunch of behaviors that were sort of morally, um, negatively morally um, thought of. So they would say they had intended to go for a run with someone and they didn't meet up with them or that it was raining. So they hadn't gone out and been physically active on a certain day or they had they had sort of deviated from their diet plan. So they had eaten something or they had drunk something which they um that didn't align with their sort of the goal of trying to lose weight. So they would list all of these things, you know, it's somebody's birthday. I had, I had birthday cake on this day or whatever. Then they would get on the scales. And then on so many of the occasions where this happened, they would find out that they had either lost weight or stayed the same. Um, and they would be genuinely shocked, you know, and, and relieved often, but genuinely shocked that this has happened. And, when, when I sort of wrote this paper up, one of the, I think it was a psychologist was probably reviewing um, it and said, well, how this is, you know, just a, a psychological trick that if you prepare for the worst, so they're not actually, um, you know, this is just a psychological trick. You prepare for the worst and then, you know, it's not that, then you sort of saving, saving your grace sort of thing. But the, the significance here, we're actually talking about that they could feel that they were bigger, that they knew for certain that they were bigger because they could feel it. They were talking about their clothes being tighter. They were talking about their bodies looking bigger. Um, and yet this reality didn't show up on the scales. And then they would say things like, but I could feel it. I could see my belly was bigger. I can't understand that, things like that. Um, and this happened pretty much every single week. This is what I call the weight of expectation or what I've theorized as the weight of expectation. So what it's describing is that if group members engaged in these so-called bad behaviors, they would come to internalize the stigma associated with them to feel a sense of guilt that manifests itself as a feeling in their bodies. So even they, they had not put on uh, the, the weight that they felt, uh, even though they had not put on the weight, they felt the gravity of their actions. Uh, they expected their bad behavior to lead to weight gain. And this expectation made them feel heavier, even if they hadn't put weight on. Hence why I describe it as feeling the weight of expectation. They're expecting to feel that and therefore they're expecting to put weight on and therefore they feel it. So this theorization may seem far-fetched, probably not as far-fetched to, to you as an audience as people who use social theory, but to some of the audiences I've spoken to definitely seemed far-fetched. Um, but this is because obviously we tend to, or popularly we think about mind and body as being separate. However, most of you, I would suggest, already believe in this theory or, or popularly this theory is believed in different ways. So classic example of the person working in a high pressure job being at a higher risk of having a heart attack. Most people would accept that logic. And it's the same process that I'm describing with the weight of expectation. Think about something like, uh, the emotion of embarrassment. Now, embarrassment is an entirely socially constructed feeling. What embarrasses you um, doesn't necessarily embarrass somebody else and doesn't necessarily embarrass me. Um, but it's another example of where the social gets under the skin is how I would describe it. So think about feeling embarrassed. So that's something that's socially constructed. And yet, what, what is the, the consequence of that? 
physiological reactions you know your skin flushes up you go red you start you start sweating you your body feels something you have a physiological reaction to a socially constructed emotion so it's the same process as what i'm describing as the weight of expectation hopefully what i'm trying to do here is to suggest it's not actually as far-fetched as as it may sound and actually i i think to people who um have engaged in weight management it's not far-fetched at all because I think most people who have engaged in weight management would have experienced this feeling. So just like the examples that I've given you, the weight of expectation is a type of psychosomatic stress. That is to say, you know, mind-body stress. It's a reaction to obesity stigma um, and what we would term a biopsychosocial phenomenon. So obviously, biopsychosocial sounds complicated but really it's something that most of us know to be true even if just from personal experience so a biopsychosocial phenomenon uh, as you may already be aware is something that is the result of many different but interconnected factors it has biological psychological and social elements which culminate in an effect Thinking about health in these terms helps us to get away from simplistic ideas of personal choice and responsibility and to better appreciate that saying sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is perhaps predictably not based on sound scientific evidence. Recent studies suggest that this is actually much the opposite. So recent research showed that people who experience weight stigma have higher levels of a hormone called cortisol. Um, as you may be aware, cortisol is known as a stress hormone. So at times of stress, our body release, releases more cortisol. cortisol. What was found in a large population study was that people who have experienced weight stigma had higher levels of cortisol compared to people who had not. This is an example of how weight stigma gets under the skin and it makes me suspect that the cortisol is likely to be involved in the feeling I have described as the weight of expectation. But of course, as any researcher who's on a fixed term contract will say, we need more research to be able to say this for sure. And if anyone wants to fund me to, to look into that, I would be very happy to take that up that opportunity. Um, so what we do know for sure um, is that cortisol encourages fat storage, which is, of course, uh, in, indicates that if you justify the use of weight stigma to promote weight loss, well, this approach is actually counterproductive. Uh, this is what Dr. Janet uh, Tomiyama refers to as the cyclic obesity weight-based stigma model, so the cobwebs model. And that's what we're trying to demonstrate in one of the pages of the comic. We're trying to demonstrate sort of a, how that might look in, in, in real life in a in sort of everyday scenario. So her model demonstrates a biopsychosocial process which creates a vicious uh, cycle whereby people are caught in cobwebs. That is, the moralization of weight leads to stigma, which disproportionately affects those with bigger bodies who then experience psychosomatic stress, which consequently leads to a biological reaction that promotes fat storage. This process is incredibly unhelpful for health promotion. Um, what was clear in weight loss groups that I observed was that the weight of expectation made people's bodies less knowable to them and was an emotionally draining experience. This didn't promote health. Instead, being stigmatized just gave group members one more thing to worry about and to deal with, which made uh, the task of weight management far more unpredictable and far more challenging. So 
something else that was interesting in the weight loss groups um, was how the group members would use physical activity as a way to combat this stigma and the uncertainty it created. So remember, I told you there was two components of the weight loss groups. They would spend like the first half an hour uh, getting weighed individually so all the group would be there but they would go up and individually get weighed in most of the groups except the men's group where it's sort of like a pantomime style get up and get shouted at as you announced your 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 weight and i'm currently writing a paper around sort of the gendered nature that it, uh, this weight um weight management this weight uh, being weighed is sort of negotiated um but that will come out some hopefully sometime before the end of the year or next year um so, but then they would spend the second half, uh, the second hour, of being physically active. So, physical activity is moralized as a good behavior. Um, you know that sort of move well, more, move more sort of idea. But just being active wasn't enough to make people in this group feel good. And that is quite an interesting finding because what we, what's been found in other studies, is generally just being physically active is enough for younger populations. Um, the studies that I've seen, it's normally younger populations to feel good about themselves, um, that they don't need anything beyond that to feel good themselves. It's just being physically active. But that wasn't necessarily the case uh, for the group that I saw. And sort of to give you examples, when in those sessions, when they were physically active before it and during it, they would often talk about things that were sort of physical reactions to that exercise so people would talk about every session I don't think there was a session men or women's where people didn't say let's go and get a sweat on so rather than referring to being physically active they would talk about let's get a sweat on we need to get a sweat on um, and actually activities that where people finished and they didn't feel particularly sweaty people would feel disappointed that they would say oh we it's not but that wasn't very good because we didn't we, we didn't get sweaty and that they would categorize the behavior, the, the activities, how good they were based on, you know, how exerted they were, how much they did sweat. And, and they would talk about that. They liked the activities or the, the, the best activities were the ones where it hurts the next day. So what the experience of what we would call DOM, so delayed onset muscle uh, soreness. And they would say what they would say. And I think it's quite interesting how they describe this is that they like these activities because then you know you've done something. So this idea that you know that you've done something. So they needed this sort of physical evidence to sort of get a, a positive feeling from being physically active. Now, my interpretation of this was that it was to deal with the unpredictability of weight management and to help them negotiate their stigmatized physical form. And I think the best example I can give of this is like, think of this, like I, I was at these groups and a lot of these groups a lot of the times at these group sessions, there were uh, people who were, are, were of a, a significant size. Um, many of them didn't have a sort of a background of being physically active. That wasn't something that they, that they had done his, historically. Um, so they were big people who were doing physical activity, which is something that didn't necessarily come natural to them. So they were really investing a lot in this. And it was incredible at the time. Um, Sort of the fit, the sort of weight loss trend was HIT training, so high intensity training, where people would you'd put maximal effort in over a short period of time. So it's, it's criticised as a it, it works for some people. It's actually that it, it became sort of notorious because it was the thing that was linked to uh, Andrew Marr having his stroke. Um, was he was doing HIT training and during that um, had had a stroke. Um, 
so that's not to say that it, it, that hit training isn't useful for some people, but anyway, it was a fad at the time. So these were people who had no sort of no background in doing this, and then they were being asked to do this really physically intense exercise. And what I could see when I was there observing is people really investing in this, really putting a lot of effort into this. And you had this situation where they did that, then they would go into the change rooms, they would get changed, you know, have a shower, change their clothes, and then they would you know, they could walk out into the car park. And as one of the women said to me, as soon as you do that, as soon as you walk back into the, the sort of the world beyond that little bubble that you had, your body is red in these. So people could just shout at you at the street, oh, you fat, lazy bitch or, or similar. And people would talk about that. That would be that those sorts of things would be said to them. Um, and yet, so they're being called lazy, even though they've just done this incredibly uh, vigorous and really in, in, intense uh uh, activity and so it's that idea that their bodies within our culture are red as la lazy irrespective of of their behavior so there's this disconnect between their behavior and how they were how they were judged and i think this added to this this need to have a physical evidence that they've that they've done something with physical activity so the sweat and aching muscles provided evidence for themselves and others of the effort that people who are categorized as overweight or obese are assumed to have shirked. So physical activity often fell into the shadow of weight loss. And it makes me wonder how much more positive and enjoyable might the experience of physical activity be if it wasn't primarily engaged with as a way to lose weight and negotiate weight stigma. So I sort of come into the to a sort of close here now. So I appreciate that this may all seem interesting to you as anthropologists who no doubt use social theory in your own work, but you might also be wondering, how, are these how have these findings been put into practice? I mentioned at the beginning of the talk that the comic was being used in health, uh, health uh, medical programs and healthcare services around the world. So I wanted to give you a few practical applications of a biopsychosocial understanding and how this can be used to support patient-centered or weight-inclusive uh, care. So firstly, seeing the bigger picture and appreciating the emotion attached to body weight and size can help health professionals to avoid what I have called the fallacy of the consultation. So I have a great deal of respect and sympathy for health professionals, in part because as a sociologist, I appreciate that they're often having to deal with the consequences of social issues, but on a one to one basis. The patient consultation encourages health professionals to think in individual terms. This person has a problem. What can I instruct them to do in order to solve or manage this problem? Often this leads to patients or clients being told to change their lifestyle while their social circumstances remain the same. And the important thing here is that those social circumstances tend to be the barrier to behavior modification. Therefore, this sets the majority of people up for failure. But falling into this trap, the fallacy of the consultation, isn't inevitable. If health uh, professionals recognize both their and their patients' limitations, rarely will health professionals be able to change a patient's social circumstances but by bringing them into the conversation, health professionals can demonstrate that they appreciate their relevance and that that uh, and that behavior change and weight loss aren't simply about individuals making different choices. Demonstrating this empathy and understanding will help professionals to avoid stigmatizing the public and patients or making them feel like personal failures. This approach will limit um, harm and promote positive relationships, which, of course, are essential to offering good care. 
Secondly, um, there is a need for health professionals to appreciate that their patients or clients are highly likely to encounter stigma in their everyday lives and that this is likely to have a detrimental impact on their health. Therefore, there is a need for them to offer patients support for dealing with this, as well as ensuring that they do not contribute to it themselves, as in the, the healthcare professionals this is. The comic we created is already helping health professionals to, do the, to have these conversations with their patients and clients. They are an easy way to start a conversation about what is a sensitive subject. And often I feel that health professionals are not given adequate training, support or resources to deal with what is a highly emotive issue. And I know one thing that patients often complain about and healthcare professionals are often unsure about is terminology. So words like obesity and fat can and do cause offense. However, it's important to realize um, that offence is experienced at a personal level and language is fluid. That is, not everyone finds the same things offensive. And even if they did, the meaning and use of words changes over time and in different contexts, which means that whether or not someone finds something offensive will, of course, also change over time and in different contexts. For instance, many people consider being called fat insulting, but there is also a whole social movement of fat activists who wish to reclaim and use the power of the word. So, when I work with health professionals, I advise them not to try to learn definitive rules about what is and what is not offensive, which is often the way in medical programs they're taught. Um, that's the way you go. You learn these definitive rules. Um, but instead, I advise them not to try and learn these definitive rules, um, but rather to think about um, uh, and, and not thinking about what is and what is not offensive, but rather to have conversations with patients about their preferred use of terms and even why they prefer these terms. This will help to avoid unnecessarily contributing to a sense of stigmatization and establish positive and caring uh, dialogues. So lastly, then, I will return to where I started across the spectrum of scientific study of humans. So from genetics to sociology, the evidence is mounting against framing weight gain and weight loss as simply the outcome of individual choice and willpower. However, this framing is still popular and drives weight stigma through narratives of irresponsibility and blame. If we are serious about promoting health, then our views and practice need to be informed by the likelihood that weight stigma detrimentally impacts people's health and lives. And therefore, there is a need to engage more critically with the relationship between weight and health. This should include appreciating that BMI is a very crude indicator of health, that the relationship between weight and health is far, uh, is far from clear, obvious or universal, and that willpower alone is unlikely to overcome genetics, socioeconomic constraints or environmental influences, or even in many cases, all three. So the weight of expectation comic has helped me to take a sociological and phenomenological analysis and make it accessible to a wide and diverse audience from, from the public to health professionals. I would encourage anthropologists, so people in this course, um, working in this field to seriously consider how they communicate their work in more access um, and try and attempt to do that in more accessible ways. Because I think social scientists have a lot to offer this field, but our analyses are often drowned out by more dominant disciplines. So I want to end the talk with the words of uh, the famous uh, anthropologist, uh, Margaret Mead, who Stanley mentioned at the beginning, I, I won an award or this, this project, I should say, won an award from the British Science Association, which was the Margaret Mead 
award. Um, and often, I think, uh, comics, so I'm sort of known as the comic book guy now by people, and this is often trivialized, you know, this idea of you have serious academic study, but then you have someone who's sort of pissing around with this comic. Um, but I think that these words from Margaret Reed are really sort of um, useful, this idea that if one cannot state a matter clearly enough so that even an intelligent 12 year old can understand it, one should remain within the cloistered walls of the university and laboratory until one gets a better grasp on one's subject. Um, so despite the popular view of cynics that comics are, are trivial, I would suggest that they're not. Rather, they are, aware, they are a way that social scientists can promote understanding of obesity as a biopsychosocial phenomenon, which is something I think is incredibly important that we do. So thank you all uh, for listening. And I'd like to invite uh, questions for any time that we have left.